Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi Joe. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm well too, thanks for asking. Uh, today's episode is is an exciting one. Uh, later on, we talk to George Colkin about Newcastle off the back of the Newcastle-Everton game. We'll talk about Everton as well before George gets here, but to begin with, we're going to discuss uh, Manchester United and Arsenal off the back of that game, Manchester United versus Arsenal. Um, but before we do that, I'd like to remind you all that you can enjoy The Athletic for £1 per week. You can enjoy it, you can consume it, you can bathe in it if you wish. You know, tell you what, there's enough on there for you to read uh, that you could uh, slowly decompose in a bath. So if you want to do that for any reason, not that you should, but the point is the high quality and uh, volume of content is, uh, is there to suit all sporting needs. And uh, for just £1 a week, I can tell you from someone who knows that's a good thing, isn't it, Seb? I don't know how to react to any of what you've just said, really. I well, mean, that that's, was, that was that's the quite the plug. I mean, also, you know, even even if I don't now go and subscribe to The Athletic, I feel like uh, I've got plenty of new issues to discuss with my therapist. Well, from you know that that was that was lovely. That's the kind of reaction I, I want is wordlessness. That's I don't want to hear anything from you. I just want you to to Open tell me you don't horror. know what to say. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Horror yeah. at the levels of quality, high quality available. If you just visit theathletic.com forward slash tifo, theathletic.com forward slash tifo that's one pound per week anyway let's talk about the football now on the podcast as it begins officially uh, i will leave you in the cool hands and the warm embrace of myself and sebastian stafford Bloor. Let us begin, Sebastian, with uh, Manchester United versus Arsenal, which, depending on uh, which team you support, was either a, a great game or an awful game. Now, can you guess which way around that was? 
First of all, when you when you when you when you address me as Sebastian, it makes me feel like I'm talking to my mother. Well, there are some similarities between your mother and I, but I won't go into them now. Uh, they're all above board, all bottom shelf. It's all fine. Uh, but I genuinely want to ask you though. I don't know uh, which perspective is best to take uh, when approaching the the fallout of this game. Would you rather start from the dreary end or from the from the the dreamy end? Hey, let's let's start positive. It's uh, I know we're re- we're releasing this on a Thursday, but it is quite close to the beginning of the week. So let's go with the good things. And okay. Yeah. Good. I thought there were a lot of good things about Arsenal. I I think I think Arsenal are really interesting. Let, let's let's put it that way. I don't know how good they are at the moment. They're interesting and they do things which are worth your attention. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things we talked to George about is uh, football's inability to be engaging at the moment. And I found myself watching this game being properly engaged. And that's a really positive thing at the moment. I, I would agree. Also, I, I mean, Arsenal started the game so uh, well, didn't they? I mean, with, they, they really controlled most of the first half. Man United had a sort of had a bit of a, of a bit of a rout uh, at the beginning of the second half but generally speaking uh, Arsenal performed the better of the two sides they controlled most of the game they totally deserved the result they pressed exceptionally high and they did all the right things and the the, the main thing i noticed from the game was Part, partly as a result of I spent some time recently with uh, a friend of a friend of mine's brother. Uh, we've been playing computer games together online. He's an Arsenal fan, and he's talking about how much he hates Lacazette, right? And so I watched Lacazette with special interest this game, and I thought the way that he sat on Fred, um, he really did an exceptional defensive job for the team. He uh, stopped Man United being able to play out every time Arsenal were able to recycle the ball and, and put more pressure on. It was usually as a result of of Lacazette's positioning. And whilst, of course, he 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 missed a very good opportunity, and and you know there are examples of him doing that in in a number of games this season. You, you know, it, it's difficult to watch that game and deny the job that he actually does put in. Did you notice that? I did, and also it feels like Lacazette misses that kind of chance every game he plays. And it's broadly fine because I think function is more important than um, the individual moments. Obviously, you need him to take chances, but I think it it reminds me of reminds me a little bit of of the role Alneni's playing uh, under Arteta, which is is kind of and you'll appreciate this given your Manchester United leanings, but it reminds me of what Arteta Sung used to do. So you have a player who perhaps on a kind of technical level, doesn't uh, doesn't stack up with or doesn't compare favourably with other options in a midfield. And yet, because as a player he is pliable and um, evidently able to take instruction to a really high degree, he's extremely useful. I thought Alneni's role in cutting off passing lanes, and I know that yeah. there's been a video circulating about his, his pressing right at the end of the game, but I thought that sort of the, the kind of guarding, patrolling, prowling role that he performed for the 90 minutes prior to that was every bit as important. And you can kind of understand why someone like Arteta, who at the moment is going through this period of needing players to, to follow instructions faithfully, and requiring discipline while the rest of his team, especially the attacking elements within it, mature and develop their chemistry. When he needs these sort of sentry-like players in the middle of the pitch, it's it's kind of revealing that that Elneny is a a first choice. Um, And I I feel Lacazette's in the same category because I completely, uh, I I, I, I empathise with your... um, uh, with your with your friend's brother, because it would frustrate me to see a, a player miss those kind of chances and make games easier. But his role and his value to the side is much greater than you know, his goal scoring ability at the moment. I think one could 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 uh, could look at the result of this game. I wonder if you agree, Seb. See that it was a one nil away from home. See that the goal was a penalty, and uh, and assume uh, or make a lot of uh, 
uh, inaccurate assumptions about the way that Arsenal controlled the game. Yeah, I think so, because I, I think also if you were to watch further to that, Joe, I think if you were to watch the last 10 minutes of that game and see the way in which Arsenal defended, which was quite deep, let's be honest, um, and there wasn't an awful lot of attacking, a counter-attacking threat there, I think you could make the mistake of thinking that this is a bit of a smash and grab, that you know United really uh, chucked the kitchen sink at, at Arsenal at trying to retrieve some points. But I, I don't, they don't have a kitchen didn't. sink. Don't have a kitchen sink. <laughs> No, they live in a house without a kitchen. They just live in a single room, with yeah. a sing- which is painted in a single colour uh, yeah. and all the same things, which are sometimes useful, sometimes not. Um, <laughs> I feel that's the kind of the, the, the right analogy. Because I, I, I think that I think the, the most complimentary thing you can say about Arsenal was that United did nothing. Yeah. Uh, apart from that, um, that strange moment when, um, I forget who it was, was it Gabriel or... Might have been Mustafi. Someone, someone deflected the ball onto Burton Leno's face. Ah, uh, uh, yes. It, yeah, yeah. I, I forget which who the defender was, um, but it just hit hit Leno, hit the post, and went out for a corner. Apart from that, I don't remember United creating very much in that game. Um, mm. I don't remember any sort of sustained periods of pressure. I don't. Well, remember... I tell you what. Before we move on, I know that's my fault because I sort of moved you moved you on, and you're taking a hint. But there, it was uh, it was a poorly placed uh, marker. Uh, I I, w- I would like to just just wrap up on Arsenal a by saying that in the wrong place. Basically, you can, is what you've done there <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, you can see the progression, can't you? I mean, and and so it kind of works perfectly within the context of this game because you know people will discuss uh, what Arteta is doing with Arsenal and discuss what uh, Solskjaer is doing with Manchester United. One of those uh, managers has had significantly less time and seems to have made uh, significantly more. I wouldn't say impact, but but seems to be more decisive. There seems to be a, a much clearer example, uh, more regularly, of what the team is trying to do under Arteta. You can really see the differences uh, that that are in place now since Emery was in charge. And whilst you know those uh, missed opportunities are still there under Lacazette, while the goal had to come from a penalty, there were three or four other opportunities in this game for Arsenal to score. Um, and as you say, you wait for that attacking trident to mature. You wait for those players to start working and clicking together under Arteta's system. You get the defensive side of it right first, and those goals will probably come right with some luck. So I, I would feel very confident if I was an Arsenal supporter that you know whether or not they're going to be challenging for the league next season, and I'm sure that's maybe not the case, you can definitely see them moving in the right direction. And that's just something that you can't see with United. I think it also makes it much easier to forgive Arsenal their flaws. So as and when they throw a, a home defeat to Leicester into yeah. their season. You might see Yeah, why. it's frustrating because, you know, you never, want, you, you never want to lose. But you can, if you're seeing a sort of an objective and if you're, I suppose, if you're seeing what a team is Teachers working towards. mark the working. Exactly this. But it, but it's true. If you can see what they're trying to do, then I think you can forgive an awful lot more. I think the other thing, um, the elephant in the room is that there's an awful lot of money that's been spent on that Manchester United side. And whether this proves to be accurate or not, I think one of the ways to look at Arteta's Arsenal is to say, okay, they are improved. They do a lot of things quite well. Uh, they are changing in an interesting way. But they're also doing that with some fairly obvious squad shortages. They need some heavy investment um, in their defence still. I think, oh, but by the way, it's worth mentioning just how good Gabriel was. I thought he was um, yeah. he was great. On a bit the, lucky on the... to get away without a second yellow, I think. Yeah, I, I, you know, uh, uh, one of my Twitter followers made a really uh, important point with this. He said that um, if uh, if Old Trafford had been full, 
And if the referee had felt yeah. the pressure of a full 78,000, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I think he goes for that. And I think that my Twitter follower is probably right. I, I think that's one of the, the uh, one of the, the factors of empty stadium football is that it's a little bit more sterile and, you know, referees are able to or should be able to make more even-handed decisions. Nevertheless, I thought that... Um, he defended very well. And so if you if you factor all these things into what Arsenal currently are in the kind of the state of the club sense, I think that's a very important part of it because you're not only watching them win away at Old Trafford, which is, okay, not what it was. It's not quite the achievement it used to be, but still a significant moment. And then you think, okay, so what could this team be in three or four transfer windows time when Arteta's actually had the kind of player that he wants brought into the club? I think that's very interesting. Whereas for United... Uh, not the same. It's just not the same because it's. It feels like it feels like they rise and fall on the on the individual performances of their players at the moment. You know, if Pogba has a good game, they do. If uh, Martial, Rashford, and whoever else is playing in that front three, Greenwood, etc. You know, if they click, then terrific. If they don't, then uh, there's nothing anybody's going to do to change the tone of the performance. Um, I think that's a generalisation. I'm not trying to make it as binary as that, but I think that's the general idea here. It's just that there's no real sense of system to me. That might be a failing of mine, an inability to see. Uh, I don't know that it is. I really don't. I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> yeah. this this game is an example, a perhaps clearer example than many games, because it's easy to, to be obfuscated when you're watching Manchester United because of the inconsistency in results. And when it clicks, it clicks so well that you know you just assume <laughs> you assume yeah. that it was intended that way um and it's very difficult to see to see through that um and, you know in a way i kind of wish alex was here to help us explain this but this game i think was a very clear example because you were very despondent after this so what was interesting to me is that we uh we generally whatsapp through games and after games uh particularly the ones that are televised and you were much more despondent about this result than you were the lost to tottenham which was that, interesting to me. I mean, that's because I, I, the, the, it was a nothing performance. Like there was there was nothing to hang on to, right? Even even the the the, the in game management aspects of it were were um, were nothingy, right? So it's obvious after the first twenty minutes, after all of Arsenal's pressure, that the problem was Manchester United's midfield balance, right? It was, uh, and we don't know. You know, I, I, I'm very reticent to to start pinning the blame on players, particularly players like McTominay, for their positioning because it's very it's unclear to us whether they are coached to to do that or whether they're doing that of their own accord. Right. Either way, it's bad. Uh, but clearly, you know, Pogba, Fred, and McTominay in this kind of in the back three of the diamond with Fernandez at the top. They tried this after it worked so well uh, in, in the previous game, um, although a bit with different players. Uh, and uh, Pogba's basically playing left midfield, right, which you assume is where he's coached to be. He's far enough away from Fred to offer some space. He's actually an option. He's hanging between the lines. The fact that the ball never reaches him is not mm-hmm. really his fault, right? So yep, the, yep. that that he was a talking point at half time. Don't get me wrong; he had a terrible second half, but his first half really wasn't that bad. And that he was a talking point, I think, was you know indicative of. Uh, who people are more willing to talk about that, or you know what people are actually noticing w- within the game? Because the talking point should have been, uh, you know, m- m- much more um, stringently the, the the pairing between McTominay and Fred. McTominay yeah, uh, who was stood about ten yards away from Fred the whole time, 
uh, who, you know, as I said, whether he's coached to be there or not, we don't know. But Fred uh, had Lacazette on top of him. McTominay was very rarely outside of, of a blocked passing lane, so he wasn't really an option. Or if he was, he was so close that the ball wasn't really moving away at all. Neither of them seemed to be able to find Pogba. Uh, Maguire would occasionally, every five or ten minutes, try one of those long diagonal passes, which sometimes work and sometimes don't, and are a pretty low probability chance. And Arsenal... You know, we praised them before for, for defending very, very well and they got the system right and they clearly looked at United's formation the previous game and saw the easiest ways to, to nullify that. Um, they offered nothing. <laughs> they offered nothing. There was no progression of the ball. There was no opportunity for the front three to click because the ball never got to them. Uh, there was no opportunity for the defence to ever push out. There was no opportunity for De Gea to have a bit of a, of a, bit of a break because the ball never got past the midfield. From an Arsenal perspective, this is where I was watching and, and be frustrated where I an Arsenal supporter because there were so many opportunities, not clear-cut opportunities, but there were so many opportunities to go and create a clear-cut chance which were handed to them by United and they and they didn't do it. That that's what we're saying with Arsenal. That will come with time and that will come, you know, that will come later on, hopefully, hopefully sooner rather than later this season. With United, it, it's a damning indictment of the coaching. And it's obvious from the first 20 minutes, they changed to a, a, a two and a three in the midfield at half time. They should have done that after 20 minutes, right? They change, uh, they change the first uh, substitution comes at 70 minutes, I believe, yeah. which yeah, is yeah, for yeah. Nan, I'm trying to remember. No, it was it was Fred off for, for Matic. And I understand why they would want to keep McTominay on, but that's not particularly progressive change. Let's stay on that substitution, Joe, because that was a really interesting moment for me because I feel like the answer to... In that game specifically, because Arsenal are a work in progress, my aim when I'm playing them is going to be, what can I do to progress the ball through the middle of the pitch? What yeah. can I do? To unsettle them. Well, to unsettle them, but to to access that corridor of space in front of their defenders where, you know, chemistry is is still kind of in its formative stage because these players don't have a long-term, don't, don't have long-term relationships um, where there is a new midfield in situ. So what can I do to make the ball, to put the ball there and to, to provide a, uh, a constant supply of possession? One of the things that I would not do is bring the Manu Matic on. <laughs> I want, no, because I, okay, I, I, I say this with the caveat that maybe he's not quite conditioned right or there's an injury or there's a, a comprehension problem because he's only been in the club for a while. Why is Van der Beek not playing in this game? Yeah, he's the know. one midfielder that I want in this match because more so than Pogba probably because I know that he can receive the ball and he can move it vertically. I also know that um, positionally he's going to occupy a range of roles in lots of different positions and ask a variety of questions which are which side with um, sort of Arsenal's, uh, not defensive issues because I, I, it makes make it sound like that that's a negative, but you know with their... With their defensive naiveties, with their naiveties of systems, if that's not too pretentious, that that's the kind of thing that they're going to struggle with. A multi-role um, sort of central midfielder that's able to do lots of different stuff, that's able to, to, to add a kind of a layer of variation to my performance. Why is he sitting on the substitutes bench and why... Why are you bringing on a kind of an obelisk-like midfielder in Manu Matic? Some of the things that he does are, are you know, some of the things he does are, are very valuable, um, 
but not in that situation. It makes no sense to mm. me. And so it, it feels like a failure of thinking. It's it's also, it's not quite a like-for-like change, right? Uh, Matic obviously has a little little more physicality to him than Fred does. He's a more similar player to Fred than he is to McTominay. And I think that's why, if you're going to make that substitution, the personnel switch does make sense. But what it's suggestive of is that the coach in Solskjaer thinks that all you need is a slight personnel change and that the system actually might be working and you might be able to provide something further up the pitch line. That, that, that's what boggles the mind for me. Is it that it's, it's not a game changer at all? It's a, it's a slight tweak, uh, which is an okay substitution if you feel like you're still in the game and you feel like you, you, know, you can make an opportunity here or there or that, that if general your signs mild, are promising. If your problem is in the game is yeah. mild and it, yeah. it, it demands a, um, a, you know, a mild remedy, fine, but it doesn't. Like we've, yeah. As we've said, the first hour of that game were, was not atrocious, but a lot of it was really bad from a United perspective. It was incredibly disappointing, yeah. especially on the back of what happened against Leipzig. Well, also, you said at the beginning, like my, my reaction to it was different to the the reaction to the Tottenham yeah. game. That's because the Tottenham game was full of individual mistakes, yeah. which you know you can you can sort of blame players you for. Can if you want, there's it, no, there's it no point. You football. can forgive it, and also yeah. it's very it, again obf- obfuscates what's actually happening with the coaching. In this game, there were there were far fewer uh, player mistakes. I don't I, I don't even you know I think players had bad games for sure. I'm not trying to not trying to say that they didn't, but. I think they were doing what they were told to do. It was a lot clearer. There were so there was only one goal and it was a penalty, right? So there are no goals from open play. It's much easier for us to watch the game and see what the coaches intended. And I cannot understand for the life of me why I can understand why Solskjaer would have started the game that way. I cannot understand why that system change, particularly given that it doesn't require any change of personnel isn't made before halftime. I cannot understand why it's 75 minutes before Greenwood uh, is off for Cavani, which I think is the wrong, another uh, poor substitution. Uh, I cannot understand why uh, Van- it was 75 minutes before Van der Beek came on for Bruno Fernandes, which again, I think is a poor substitution in taking Fernandes off, the only player on the pitch who's consistently shown that he can be a game changer, uh, it, it taken off. You leave Pogba, who's exactly the only player that, out yeah. of position on the left-hand side. You leave him instead of instead of taking him off for Cavani, putting Cavani through the middle and letting Rashford go into where into the left where he's played most of the season. Keeping Greenwood on the right, he's young, he can still run. He you know he's got a goal in him. You take it. It, it just seems to me, and I don't want to be the person who you know sits uh, uh, back from the sidelines and then criticizes the coach because. Clearly, Solskjaer knows more about management than me, but I, I am going to say <laughs> that I feel like the decisions were all bad decisions, and it was a nothing performance. And you know, counter to what we said about Arsenal, who you can see the progression, you can see that that maturity is bleeding in over time. Uh, you would feel excited about it. Uh, that's it. That's kind of it for me now. Like, not that I'm not particularly invested, and I don't really care what which manager Manchester United uh, pick. But if I were a supporter, that would be that would be the game where I'd think, okay, Pochettino's on on um, Monday night Monday night football. Night football. He, yeah. You know, there's another conversation there. I think he's for the team for the players that the, that the team currently has. Pochettino's probably the wrong coach, but he's clearly a better coach than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, that yeah. That would be it for me. I think um, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't end up tweeting this just because I, I I can't deal with sort of um, weighing in with the uh, Solskjaer in out. Oh, it, it's coming after we release this. Yeah, I'd imagine so. But then you know, I might might uh, as we know, I've I've, I've I've planned some days off next week, so maybe I'll just turn <laughs> off my phone. Um, I remember thinking, if you gave these two managers three years and an equal amount of money and you know roughly the same working conditions, so. You know, uh, same group of players, 
um, same fixtures. Who would you expect after that period of time to be in a better situation? It's Arteta 10 times out of 10. Um, and it's a very strange thing to say because I say that with with yeah, about someone that has really nothing on their CV. I mean, he's won an FA Cup, yes, um, and that's that's a, it's a good thing. But in terms of a his ability to manage a long term project over any kind of meaningful period of time, there's nothing for Arteta, and yet you still have the faith because of what he's been able to oversee in in such a short space of time. It's been two years with Solskjaer now. This is not a kind of and it was never meant to be from the beginning. Well, it was never meant to be, but also, Joe, I think it, it feels a lot like people are waiting for a moment of definitive judgment, a, a sort of a, a moment of revelation where it's going to be proved beyond reasonable doubt whether he is a good coach or a bad one. Now, this is I slow think, terminal death. But this, this, is, is, this, is, this is not like a heart attack. But this, this, but this week is what it looks like. The last week, sorry. It's a, in three years' time, Oli Solskjaer will still be beating Leipzig on a Wednesday and still be losing to Arsenal on a Sunday. That's how it will be because he is not the worst. He's not the best. He's fine. You, I think you made this point on WhatsApp. You cannot just be a fine manager at Man United just because the, the, the judgment is so harsh. And also, if you're Manchester United, your aim has got to be to win the Premier League because you know that's commensurate with the amount of money you spend, the wages you pay, all these kind of things, clubs, reputation, history, status. You're not going to win a, a, a Premier League with Oli Solskjaer. It's just not going to happen. Um, maybe an FA Cup, possibly Europa League. Who, who knows? But it, if the answer to that question is no, we cannot win the the sort of um, you know the we, we we cannot measure ourselves favorably against uh, the competition that that we've you know that has defined us in the modern era. Then what are you doing? Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And I, I know what's coming, but then I'm not, I'm not interested. Like, I mean, if, if you want to argue with me, just, just fair warning. I, I just, I, I'm not sure I care enough to, to, to hear it. So, <laughs> uh, Listen, when we come back, we'll be talking to George Colkett about Newcastle. And after that, we'll chat about Everton. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The first thing I would like to ask you, George, is I was, um, I was listening to your podcast, Pod on the Tyne, uh, the other day. And uh, I heard you mention uh, that Chris Wofford said he thinks Newcastle have played four or five different formations so far this season and don't don't seem to be able to settle on one. Watching the Everton game, it was clear that they were playing, it was seeming to me, the same system that they played against Wolves um, and it appeared, appeared to work. Do you feel any confidence that this might be a settled system now or is this as a result of, of personnel issues and you think they'll change things up again? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's been this sort of lurching between systems which I kind of wrote about after after the Wolves game and it's this attempt by Steve Bruce to be, make the side more attacking he wants to play four at the back I mean that he's he's spoken about that and then he'll try it they might score a few more goals and then what tends to happen is they'll lose a, a game or two games quite badly and then he'll abandon it and can revert back to to three at the back or five at the back it's a system that kind of seems to suit them better um, and it certainly has done. Uh, I mean, I was I was at both of those games that you mentioned, Wolves and Everton. Wolves was was pretty bad in terms of quality, but he felt that he had to sort of 
stiffen it up and so he does that and then they'll get, tend to get a couple of results and then he'll have to switch things around again so yes against Everton it felt quite solid and, and, and felt pretty decent after the first half but it's very much a work in progress and it's about sort of trying to get the attacking players that they now have at the club into the team into the system and 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 keep it settled What's interesting about that, uh, you mentioned uh, there's a number of attacking players that, that play at Newcastle now. And of course, Newcastle did, did I think, what people would agree was fairly good business over the summer. Um, yeah. But within the system, they, they still look like they're defenders. You know, the best of, uh, the best example of that, I think, and this is not to detract from his quality at all, because, I mean, uh, Almiron clearly is quite effective at running back and tracking back and is, is willing to put, put a shift in. But he's quite an exponent of that, you know, having attacking players in a team that are mostly defending. You don't, you don't really see all of their qualities, do you? No, I mean, that was particularly noticeable at Wolves when Almiron, it felt like Almiron was sort of playing as an auxiliary defender, getting back, making clearances, doing all that sort of stuff. And there's been this pressure, I suppose you'd call it. I mean, how that pressure manifests itself now is a sort of interesting question. But certainly, you know, certainly online for for Bruce to get all the attacking players into the same team so that you would have Wilson and Fraser and Almiron and Alassane Maxima, Callum Wilson, you know, all playing, all playing together. And they did that. They pretty much did that at Wolves, except that you know they were all behind the ball. Um, I don't think Newcastle is still beyond the thing that Benitez used to call the short blanket syndrome. So you would sort, you know, you pull the blanket up to cover your top half of your body, and it leaves your feet exposed and makes your feet cold. I mean, I, I kind of love that analogy. They haven't. They still have that. So it feels like you answer one question by picking a certain team or a certain formation, but you then raise other questions. It's been quite interesting in the last two games how ineffectual St Maxima has been, for example. So, you know, certainly the great hope for the for the team, for the squad in terms of that unpredictability and creativity. He's the one real sort of difference maker. But playing in this role just behind the main striker doesn't appear to suit him. So I think they're still, I mean, it's part of just being an inconsistent mid-table Premier League team, I'm sure. But it does feel that for every question that there's answered, it just, it raises another one elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, you really saw the difference when Ryan Fraser came on, didn't you? And of course, you know, late game, there's uh, impacts from, from fast to tricky players, but it just seemed to click in a way that it hadn't done for the whole game. Yeah, exactly. And Fraser is so fast, so direct. Yeah, immediately, he's he's throwing crosses into the box and you know that's exactly what Wilson wants that's not what Alan San Maximan does he's he's tricky he can dribble past people he, he can sort of create something out of nothing but if you're a striker you probably want that more you know you want that reliability don't you you want crosses into the box things to feed off I mean as long as it works like that as long as the kind of combination works then it's not it's not a problem but um yeah this this system in particular doesn't appear to get the get the best out of St Maximan yeah. So from an outside view, looking at Newcastle quite broadly and uh, acknowledging that probably most of our listeners are not Newcastle supporters, right? Uh, it looks uh, to me like Newcastle are doing fairly well. Uh, I think I think you have 11 points from seven games. You're yeah. sort of not near the relegation zone. Performances have been like fairly inconsistent, but actually results have been pretty good, uh, in, you know, in comparison to previous seasons. Um, but when you watch the team... <laughs> You just you don't feel that there's a bit of a disconnect between those two things. What would you say to people who who aren't watching every Newcastle game? Like, what can you summarise Newcastle this season so far for non-viewers? 
I mean, it's very it's very difficult to summarize summarize the club in a way that's sort of easily digestible. But <laughs> yeah. you have to sort of, and you have to put it into context actually, and you have to put it into context of the emotion, what's been ha- happening off the pitch. You have to remember that Steve Bruce walked into a kind of pretty difficult and toxic atmosphere because Benitez had left. Benitez had left, who had this connection with fans, who sort of represented ambition and felt he couldn't take the club any further forward. And so you had that sort of huge wave of disillusion. And we did actually see that manifest itself in the fact that the club ended up having to give away 10,000 part season tickets last season, which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And it was it was that was shielded it was hidden it was masked because of the fact that the stadium was full but that's been bubbling along in the background and then of course what's been bubbling up you know along in the background this year has been the takeover or the failed takeover or you know the lingering takeover that we probably have to refer <laughs> to it now and so there's all this emotion going around about the club Newcastle should be, could be, aren't, won't be, refuse to be, you know, so it makes kind of, it it makes pure judgments on the football very, very difficult. Now, I think Bruce did as well as he could, as could be expected, I think, last season, bearing bearing in mind all of that context, the fact that they effectively played without a centre forward for most of last season, uh, and, you know, I'm not in, I'm not including £40 million they spent on Gillington in that. <laughs> Certainly in terms of where they finish up in the league, that was a that was a decent, solid performance, bearing in mind how bad it could have been. There's a bit more of the, more of the same this season. We've seen these lurches, a decent start at West Ham, immediately, the same team, then immediately lo- loses really badly to, to Brighton, and it doesn't appear that, that there's any sort of system or plan. And all of these things are kind of going on in the background. The cl- Yeah, the, t- the team have done fine. They've done fine this season. Having spent the money they did on the players they did in the summer, it's probably about fair enough. Um, but it's not this. There's not this feeling of joy around the club. There is this huge disconnect, yeah. and we're living in a disconnected society in a disconnected world at the moment. So it's just so difficult to sort of reach lasting conclusions about where the club is, what it means, what it stands for, and how people feel about it. George, you wrote um, you wrote a piece about what it's like to watch football inside empty stadiums and how that kind of uh, skews the dynamic between the, the team and the supporters who are sort of locked out. Do you think it would be different if, because some of these some of these performances, some of these uh, ten men behind the ball, hang on, gritty, uh, you know, efforts against bigger sides. Do you think there'd be a little bit more not harmony because it's Newcastle? Let's be fair, um, but a little bit more, a bit more of a collective spirit to it if if they were playing these games and in, in, in front of a full stadium at the moment yeah again i mean i find it very difficult to kind of get beyond that um yeah. I'm, I'm not the you know i'm not the day-to-day newcastle reporter chris woff is and i just found it i find it very difficult emotionally to go to the ground i mean i know that sounds pathetic but for me what newcastle stands for they're my club what it stands for is people what it stands for is the people that go it's the people, it's my family, it's my friends. That's not to dismiss the people who can't go or who are abroad or, you know, whatever. But that's what it means to me. And it's that it's that emotion. And I'm also so attuned as a journalist to respond to the noise in the stadium. So if I'm doing my work, I've, you know, I'm hunched over my laptop. Suddenly there's a noise from the crowd. You look up. There's nothing to sort of pull you to the pitch anymore. At least there isn't, at least there isn't to me. And it's kind of reinforced that. And... I tend to think that, yes. I mean, I sort of think that the stadium acts as a 
conservative with a small c anchor on the club and the fan base and that without that it's very difficult it's so disparate it's it's extreme um you know we often at the start of last season there was this very kind of voluble call for a boycott for the first game of the season if you only looked at kind of Twitter, you'd think that the stadium would be empty. And then, of course, the match day comes around and you're confronted by the kind of fact, which in some ways is disappointing, but you're confronted by the fact that a lot of people just want to go to the football. And I think that's the bit that's missing now. We, we have extremes of debate about Steve Bruce, Mike Ashley and all the rest of it. And we don't have that sort of match day experience to either buy into what's happening on the pitch or to express its disapproval, and, you know, I kind of hate that, really. Do you find football boring at the moment? I mean, this isn't really a Newcastle question. I just, um, it's me seeking reassurance from other people. I do. I, yeah. I, I watch it, and it's so sterile, George, and even even the games where silly things happen, you know, sort of Liverpool conceding seven times to Villa, I watch it, and I, I'm kind of, it's partly not interested, partly it feels like everything that's happening is kind of inconsequential and part of some sort of, what I imagine wartime football was like a little bit. Um, <laughs> and it's very hard to uh, to engage in the same way. Please tell me I'm not alone in thinking that. No, I mean, I think it's reinforced to me. I, I completely agree. It's reinforced to me about how little I actually like football. And I don't mean that to sound exactly stupid, stupid or that. funny, because I do. I do love football. If there's a game going, it's, all, it's about context. If there's a game going on in my local park, I'd watch it. I love going to non-league you know, games of football when there aren't very many people there. It's fine. I, I like it. I like, but for me, my connection to it is is that human touch, and that is what I'm. That is definitely what I'm missing. It makes me sound very ungrateful because I get to. I am getting to go to these games every now and again, and you know, fans aren't, and so that does put me in a position of privilege. At the same time, I find it very difficult to relate to what I'm seeing because I'm so used. I think my, you know, the. The moments I enjoyed most last season were a couple of times when I reported from the away end with Newcastle fans, and all I did was, you know, record the sights, sound, smells, and there were a lot of smells, unfortunately. But you know, and that that sort of feeling of X-rated stupidity that is part of what makes the game so vital and stupid. I think one of my favourite moments in lockdown, by the way, was. BT, I think it was. They had this. Um, they went through this period of having a mural in the background of fans, and somebody just held up a sign that said "Robbie Savage is a wanker" or whatever. And I just <laughs> laughed my head off because I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not like condoning that. But at the same time, that is precisely the bit of football that I've missed. It's the mess. It's the mess of it. It's the noise. It's the sound. It's all of those things. It's that feeling of adrenaline. And I don't get that in an empty stadium. I don't get it at all. And you you miss community. And what I'm missing, I think what we're all missing at the moment in life is is community. It's interesting because you mentioned, you mentioned Molyneux and all of my memories of reporting from Molyneux are pretty much from the kind of the 10 minutes before kickoff when you got Jeff Beck's guitar playing rather <laughs> into it. And I wonder whether someone like Steve Bruce suffers a little bit as a result of that. Because when you go to these stadiums and you play defensively, if you have the context of the atmosphere of the ground, particularly someone like Molyneux, where all those, those banks are so high and it feels like a kind of, um, can feel a little bit like a bear pit at times. Yeah. I wonder whether when you put some, a manager like that with, your, with his kind of ill-fitting duvet, 
I wonder whether because it feels <laughs> you described it as a training exercise um, in your article. I wonder because because it feels so sterile, it just becomes so much more damning when you watch it. it. It doesn't provoke very much out of you as a fan or as a as a neutral, and so you kind of you're left cold. It's particularly so when it's so defensive. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think part of it is is about how a team should evolve and transition and things like that. I think that's part of what's happening at the moment. That fine when Newcastle came up and Benitez thought okay, the only way we're going to survive is by playing in this style. That style became, it it, it, it sort of evolved a little bit in his final season when they brought in Almiron and they had Rondon up front and it, the second half of that final season was actually quite impressive and, and quite good. But I think there was something to buy into. You know, you had to, what, what you were buying into was the fact that that was the way he he determined that that was how Newcastle stay up, and then from that from that moment you kick on. Now, obviously, things reset when Benitez goes and Rondon goes and Jose Perez goes and all that. But I just think that without the crowd there, you know, it, against Man City in in Benitez's time, everyone's behind the ball, every tackle is cheered, every break is cheered. There's this huge uplift, and the noise when those results go the right way. Uh, are sort of extraordinary and they're guttural and they feel you feel that and now of course you don't and I think it affects the concentration I think you know the interesting thing is Steve Bruce calls it boring and he feels you know he feels that way now you can argue that if crowds were at St James's Park at the minute he would be having a hard time but I think he would prefer that than than the environment that there is now where and you know watching on television if you have the crowd noise on it does mask it I mean I would actually prefer to do that now I've I've got to the point where I would actually prefer to be at home because the community is now the community is somewhere else the community is on Twitter or elsewhere and so that feels more like the home crowd than actually being in the stadium when you're divorced from everything, including the television coverage. It sounds very strange to say that, and I kind of hate myself for saying it, but being in the stadium, you don't get anything out of it. You don't get anything out of it as an experience. You actually you feel more of it watching it on television, I think. The whole thing interests me because I'm not a match-going fan. I never really have been. Um, in fact, I I sort of... I don't know, four four or five times a season I'll go to Carrow Road, but I'm not really a Norwich yeah. fan, so it's not like I don't have don't have that uh, community association. Um and so I've all, I've always watched football on the telly and as a result I'm kind of I'm, I'm not really missing what, what you're missing, yeah, yeah. George. And so yeah. I first noticed it uh, when I saw Callum Wilson, the football player, playing for Newcastle in the position of forward, which is historically an important position for the club, uh, with no fans, which obviously sucked for him because uh, that's, uh, you know, career-wise going to be one of the bigger moments. Yeah, and Newcastle yeah, supporters yeah, yeah, are notoriously, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, supportive, aren't they? That's their job. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I sort of hadn't felt it up to that point. And when I, when I watched him on his debut... I uh, I realised it for the first time and, and sort of felt for him. And your your experience is so is so perfectly valid, and I'm sure is completely I'm sure is replicated uh, in loads of different, you know different places with different people and things like that. And I can really only talk about my experience, but my experience has always been about the people. You know, the yeah. first time I went to St James's when I was very young, when I was seven or eight, it was in the seventies. What really 
sort of startled me, apart from this, you know, the sight of the green surrounded by all the black and white and stuff like that, was just that throng of people. And it's just always been what I've associated with the club. And it's meeting people beforehand, it's talking about it afterwards, and it's just that noise, it's the noise. And for a long time at Newcastle, okay, so Newcastle don't win anything, we've came quite close in the 90s and early 2000s. You know, we were pretty good at that point and there was always that sense that it might happen. But what we've had in the last, certainly in the last 30 years, is that sense of turning up. We turn up. Now, those bonds have been frayed in the last couple of years, as I, as I explained earlier. That bond has been frayed a bit, but it's still there. You know, what do we have? Well, we have a noise. We have people. And now we don't have people and we definitely don't have noise. So again, that's not that's not something unique to Newcastle. But the context, you know, with that context of, of history, I just find it very painful. I find it very painful not to be able to kind of share it with people anymore. And, I, I, you know, as a journalist, what, what, excites me what turns me on what what really makes me enthusiastic is getting in front of people and talking to them yeah of course i can't do that either i mean not in the same way so it's it is you know, it's a sense of without over dramatizing it it's a sense of it's a sense of loss i'm glad it's there because i think you know the alternative would be worse but yeah. it's just not it's just not football to me the last thing i would like to ask you about is um is the fans you just mentioned them there um but what's the situation with the season tickets in newcastle because it's it's not straightforward right hopefully it's at the point of getting resolved now because yeah at the start of last week uh there was the quite interesting dynamic of mike ashley coming out and criticizing the premier league over their pay-per-view model uh and saying it was too expensive and whilst I absolutely agreed with him. It, um, it, it, it. There was a slight feeling of hypocrisy about that because at the same time Newcastle was still uh, draining their season ticket holders' money from their direct debits, and they were the only club that hadn't really communicated with fans about what was happening. Now, since then, that has happened. So, um, and plenty of people sort of say, "Well, why haven't season ticket holders just cancelled their direct debits?" Well. You know, part of this thing about Newcastle fans and clinging on to this idea of turning up and things like that was that there would be a feeling that if they did that, they might lose loyalty points that they've accrued over years and years and years, and that then they would struggle to get to away games and get tickets from important matches when football comes back in the way that we hope it it does. So, um, thankfully, that he they belatedly have taken steps to to address that. Hey, well, George, thanks so much for uh, for, for joining us today. Um, we wish you all the best for the future of the, the human race. Thank you. <laughs> Likewise. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, thank you to George. Um, and uh, now let's discuss Everton, which is a team, Seb, that I have watched more than any other team this season. You really like Everton. I really like you're, Everton. You're really into Everton. The Do you know what yeah. I like about Everton? Tell me. I like Hamas Rodriguez. I like uh, Luca Dina. I like uh, Richarlison. <laughs> you didn't have a good time on Sunday, then. Basically, no, is what you're trying to tell me. <laughs> not really. No. What? What? The main thing that I got from this game, uh, short of uh, being, you know, ending up being more interested. I mean, I watched it. I approached it thinking I'll take notes about Everton because it's going to be interesting to see um, how this team performs without some of their star players. I ended up, as probably heard from the George Colkin uh, segment, taking many more notes about but Newcastle, um, because it felt kind of obvious from the beginning with Everton what the, the story was. And the story really is uh, the difference between top-class players and um, and very, very good players. And that, that difference, I think, is... Uh, so apologies for the siren outside. They're coming to take me away because of Thank my goodness. criminal footballing it's opinions. Not uh, before time. The, differ- <laughs> the difference is, you know, players make things happen. Um, and I think there's two two categories here. That's the first, right? And it felt like there 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 wasn't a lot of making of any things from the Everton from this Everton side, of course, who were you know severely depleted. Um, the second is consistently making good decisions, and I think you can you can apply that to particular players. And there are lots of players on, on the Everton team, and there are some players on the Newcastle team who who have one of those two categories. I would describe Callum Wilson as I think I did as, as a player who consistently makes good decisions. Right, you know, he doesn't take him very many opportunities to score a goal, uh, but it, you know, he's less of a make things happen player, although his wonderful pass to Alison Maximan during the game oh very very nice yeah you but, wouldn't shut up about that for quite a while you really was, uh, really like that pass I just love yeah. I love it when you see a player who doesn't often either do that or get the opportunity to do that do that I love yeah, that I but I would say Hamas Rodriguez is a player who makes things happen and consistently makes the right decisions when he's doing that uh, I would say Richarlison uh, makes things happen. Don't know if he he's quite uh, consistently making good decisions yet. Uh, Luca Dini also makes things happen, and you know, often enough makes good decisions. Not necessarily when he's tackling, uh, but that they were missing those sorts of players, I think, really made them a bit of a cliche, quite toothless. Um, and I, I feel it's very, it, it's, you know, the reason we ended up talking more about Newcastle today is because it's pretty unfair to judge a team. Uh, when they're missing, when they're missing three or four key players like that, and when you bring those second parts in, it's amazing in a way that you know Gilfie Sigurdsson is is considered the depth at Everton. That's something that you know he perhaps wouldn't have wouldn't have had uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but really, he you know we talked about a little little bit before the podcast. Uh, he's not really a playmaker anymore. He's the kind of guy who shoots from outside the box quite a lot and isn't as on isn't on target as much as he used to be. What's really interesting about Sigerson is that uh, um, I remember watching him. The first time I, I, I probably watched him live was when when he came to Spurs, obviously. And he um, he didn't replace Luka Modric, but he ended up receiving the ball in a lot of the same positions that Luka Modric did previously at Spurs, you know, before Modric went to Real Madrid. Um, and it was very interesting to note uh, the kind of the, the different margins that exist in football. So Luka Modric, probably one of the best first touches I've ever seen, certainly live. I mean, it just such a I think you'd pay to watch Modric you know play football by himself in a park he's just he, he was that good on the ball now Ilfie Sigerson you know really good footballer uh 
does a lot of good things on 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 the ball. Um, is a valuable commodity within the Premier League. I mean, Everton paid nearly forty five million pounds for him, so a lot of money. And yet, I remember thinking, God, his first touch is a bit shit, <laughs> which is an extraordinary thing to say about a professional footballer. But then, I think this is um, this is kind of similar to a point that's worth making um, about James Rodriguez. When someone like that is gone, you notice the inefficiencies in whoever's being asked to quote-unquote replace him. Uh, I take your point that Guilford Sigerson is not really a playmaker, but he's kind of sharing those duties in that in the side that was picked on Sunday. That's part of his role because he is someone that can deliver a final ball. He's got a creative mind. And yet when you see him receive the ball and you see the time he takes to make a decision, these are split seconds and they are... Um, you know, there, there are, you know, very few material differences between him and someone like James Rodriguez. And yet the difference seems absolutely vast. <laughs> that's that's um, top level football. <laughs> that is top level football, man. Like, and, and it's, uh, I know it's really, like the two players we've compared him to are Luka Modric yeah, and James Rodriguez. It's, it's not, not very fair. fair. It's not fair. And and, and I think Gilfie Sigerson is, is still a, a very good player. And he um, was a he, wonderful player. He was a wonderful player. Like he, um, he should never have been lumbered with that fee because that was an overspend, clearly. Um, and I think his form has really suffered at Everton, and he hasn't really done himself justice. I don't think that's up for debate. But um, the difference is—it's so interesting to see how differences like that are exaggerated by the context, um, and also how they ripple across the side. So when you put someone in there in in that sort of role. Um, to kind of make up, uh, to, to sort of fill the uh, James Rodriguez void. And you see them trying to replicate some of those things and you see the effect that it has and you see how limiting it can be on the other players around them. It's amazing, the butterfly effect in a football team. What's, what, what, what is interesting uh, from a more system perspective about Everton, as it relates to personnel, is that clearly the new midfield three, that balance is so perfect when you take one element out of yeah. it, it's actually yeah, yeah, difficult yeah. to know how to replace it. I mean, if you think about the, the differing qualities and the way that they, they complement each other of Hamez, of Alan, who I think was Everton's best player during this game, of Abdullah Decore. Um, Decore is is a fantastic ball carrier. He's a great hustler. Uh, he, you know, creates many chances. He creates a lot of space for other people. And, you know, he's a decent passer too. Good Alan, technical player, Decore. Good, yeah, exactly. Under- this is what I'm saying about ball carrying. Yeah. Uh, Alan is, you know, again, like he didn't he didn't do enough of this in this game, probably because he was the only player trying to do it. But he's great at those line-breaking passes. He's fantastic at recycling possession. Isn't a bad defender. It, you know, it, it does his job exceptionally well and has that kind of higher edge of quality than generally speaking players in that position do. I think you know Everton are is fantastic that he's there. And Hamas Rodriguez obviously adds all of the flair and a lot of the creativity and a lot of the vision to that. And when you have them together. That's just the perfect balance. And when you take one of those players out, I mean, I think you could take any of them out and they're, they're difficult. that's difficult to, to replicate that balance. So again, adding that to the reasons why it's unfair to criticise Gilfie Sigurdsson. Also, you know, Richarlison is, has been key to this Everton team. One of the things that they've done so regularly this season so far is stack everyone on the right-hand side. Uh, you know, Hammers Rodriguez pulls out there, Decore's out there, Allen's pulling out there, Calvert-Lewin's pulling wide on the right. Uh, and Richarlison is in space and the ball's crossed, usually, Hamas Rodriguez, ball crosses over to him. Richarlison is able to either have a shot or create an opportunity. That's happened so regularly and that dynamic obviously wasn't there um, and Gomez was playing on the on the left-hand side, which 
you know, is he's not he's not the same sort of player. So I think there were too many elements missing. What I would say is the real the real positive that came out of this game was Calvert Lewin's goal. He had very very few opportunities during the game. And um, we go back to you know thinking about players as either you know making consistently good decisions and and making things happen. When his opportunity came, he scored the goal. And like that, that's a very positive to see because he hadn't scored the previous game. We don't expect him to score every game. Yes, we do. But yes, we do because he's in our fancy team. He's and in our, our fancy, fancy teams are going through a hard winter at the moment. By the way, the only two players I had were uh, were Callum Wilson and uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. So very happy with hey, this game. You know what? Um, that that uh, Calvert-Lewin goal made me think of um, the Paddy Boylan article where he talked about how when Aunt Angelotti came into to the club, one of the focuses sort of in concert with Duncan Ferguson. Uh, was to get Calvert Lewin in more typical number nine positions, you yeah, know, kind of more poachery, snipery kind of role, and that was classic. You know, a couple of you years see his ago, his goal map that they showed, absolutely, they're all clustered, <laughs> they're all within the kind of. If you were to draw like a, you know, straight lines from the penalty spot to to either 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 the, the, the two posts, all of his goals practically come in that area. Yeah, really all in the six yard box, and that you just yeah, it was a kind of perfect vindication of that little anecdote. Um, but it was, I, I think it was a really nice finish. You yeah, know, no, it, to- it totally of, was. It totally yeah, was. Absolutely. So I, d- I don't think it's, you know, it's disappointing for Everton to, to, to not, you know, be able to kick on in a game like this. But I think the reasons are obvious as to why. Excited for those players to get back. Excited to watch the team develop over the season. And I'm excited for Ancelotti to get a bit of an opportunity in January or, or next summer to, to think about players that can come in as replacements for midfield depth that might be able to better... You know, like it's not a, it's it's one of the better problems to have. I would say for put sure, it that way. For sure. Um, and they're going to do well this season, and I will continue to watch them. Hey, so we um we might might uh, need to wrap this up, otherwise we'll get shouted at by uh, our head of design. <laughs> We're currently missing the design meeting. It's a bit yeah, like a smoking so. around the back of the bike sheds, isn't it? it Did you ever like... play truant at school, Seb? Of course not. No. Have you? Uh, you know, I've got a hyphen in my name. I don't Jesus. do things like that. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, that's all now but uh, we'll be back next week or later in the week or another time with other things that are very similar to this but not quite the same Uh, thanks for listening and uh, au revoir As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 